Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and we are in Systematic Theology 3, and we're picking back up on the subject of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and specifically with the role of women in the church. Uh, it's interesting to note that little is said about the role of, of men as that tends to not carry as much controversy, controversy in our day, uh, though we think that as the society continues to blur genders, uh, Matt and I suspect that their roles will be more and more uh, messed up, uh, where, where men and women literally, their lines are completely blurred, and so that will require a robust theology of men in the church. Uh, but right now, it's still not really needed. So we introduced this subject in the prior podcast, so we don't want to give a lot of background here. Suffice it to say that we showed that there's a high biblical view of women in, by God and in the church. But what determines how women function, uh, but what is it that determines how women function within the church? Is it culture or is it scripture? And if scripture, then which passages? Does every passage have equal influence and authority? And if, ever, and if culture does play into it, how much does it play into it? And what is its relationship with scriptures? Yeah, and these are not little questions, right? Um, and every listener uh, needs to think about that a lot more than most perhaps are willing to do. Um, but for example, listen to any discussion or read an article that addresses this subject from an egalitarian perspective. And people like Deborah, uh, the judge, Priscilla, Junius, Phoebe, uh, women like the Samaritan woman at the well, or Mary Magdalene will be mentioned. Uh, in fact, um, in 15 articles and three podcasts that, well, I guess you listen to these, um, <laughs> uh, all of them within the first couple of minutes or paragraphs um, have mentioned these women in some yep. way. These and were their... Their go-tos. Yeah. Um, and additionally, you find arguments related to being faithful to the gifting of the Spirit or the anointing that a woman received. So again, uh, I feel I have this gifting. Um, you can't deny that. Um, or there's some special anointing that's being given upon someone. And essentially, you're transgressing against God if you don't allow them to yep. do something. Um, usually after that, there'll be some level of mention or discussion on the actual verses that directly relate to the subject uh, in a didactic way, uh, but they will then be uh, diminished or reworked to just no longer say what they say. Um, so on, on the other hand, there are those then in the complementarian camp who will reference passages without considering the context, and the result there are conclusions that are not solid in any way, and therefore unpersuasive. So we hope not to be those people in this section. Uh, and so we want to give you some of the key passages related to women in the church. We want to work through them in their context. And then 
let the word of God stand. And so with that, um, we're going to look at these key passages in the New Testament about women and the church. And a word of warning, though, uh, is that too often these discussions uh, are made and there's very little effort to actually deal with the biblical text. And working through those texts is not always fascinating or exciting. Um, but if we are truly men and women who believe that the word is true and it's right and it's authoritative, then we have to first know what the word actually says rather than what a, a theologian or some preacher might be saying. Yeah. Um, so that's our warning to say we might get boring sometimes in this <laughs> podcast, right? But it's important. Uh, but it's important, right? Um, so in Galatians 3.28, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So some will say that Galatians 3.28 uh, puts an end to all distinctions between men and women. That's, this is one of their big passages. This is one of the most common ones, in fact. Even though now that it is much more established as a view, um, people are appealing to it less and less because uh, they – they, it's not even a point of discussion. Um, listen to what Sosi says uh, on this. He says, for, the, for most interpreters, interpreters throughout the history of the church, the apostles' teaching concerning male and female in Christ in Galatians 3.28 is not contrary to his other teaching concerning their ordered relationships in society and the church. Rather, the two teaching, teachings are complementary. There is an order and yet also a profound equality, and, and, and that's true. Now, the context of the book of Galatians relates to the doctrine of salvation and how a person can be rightly related to God. And so Sosi also points out, unlike the apostles' other writings, Galatians does not address a variety of issues related to the practical life of the Christian in the different spheres in which he or she lives. In other words, the church, home, work, or the world. And he goes on, uh, the thrust of the passage thus deals with the objective state of salvation. That's important. I'll say it again. The thrust of the passages thus deals with the objective state of salvation common to all believers. The emphasis is on the unity of believers in Christ and their equal participation in all that belongs to those in him without distinction. Okay. Um. And then in Colossians 3, 10 through 11, uh, there's a parallel there, uh, verse there to the Galatians 3, 28. Um, and it, they're stressing equality of all believers in Christ. And so it says this, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, and then yet, just seven verses after that, Paul states this. He says, Now wives, be subject to your own husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Uh, that's verse 18 of chapter 3 of Colossians. So, Sosi makes this helpful point. He says, Apparently the apostle does not intend his teaching on the equality of all believers in Christ, verse 11, to deny the functional distinctions between man and women in the home, verse 18. Um, so, th this passage is key for the whole discussion of men and women, but it does not become a key passage for the egalitarian position um, as it's not discussing the function or role, but rather an ontological 
uh, or positional reality. Uh, so men and women, slave or free, if they're in Christ and they're equal in essence, that they're one. That that's Paul's point there. Right. And so when that one gets thrown out by an egalitarian to a complementarian, we would just shrug and say, we agree with that. Yeah. We don't agree with your application because you're going beyond what the text is speaking about and what it's asserting. Everyone who actually knows what the Bible says would say, yeah, if you're in Christ, you are equal. Uh, we're all in Christ. Not some are not more in because they're male or something right. like that. But that's not the, but that's not therefore making all of these other passages then go away. So let's give you another one. This one is uh, found in 1 Corinthians 14.34, and you'll hear it all the time. Uh, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to, be, to subject themselves just as the law also says. So, bam, right there. Women can't talk. God, you're not allowed to talk at all. So this passage, we, we don't believe that. Um, <laughs> But that's how it gets treated. So yes. the, some on the complementarian camp would say, that's it. But they're actually not dealing with the context. The passage actually is dealing with the issue of prophecy in the local church. And, and Paul has made it clear that both men and women could prophesy. So clearly, he's not talking about any kind of speech. The term for silent, in fact, here is used two other times in this context, in verse 28 and verse 30. And in those contexts, there is no sense that there was to be an absolute silence or forbidding to speak. So here's what verses 30, 29 and 30 uh, says, and it helps us understand the issue. He says, if let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Now, if someone had a prophecy, in other words, only two or three should speak. And the other prophets should pass judgment, meaning all the prophets of the church aren't invited to get up and give their own individual prophets. Paul would say, look, out of all of you, only two or three of you should be giving a prophecy. Um, and the others should then pass judgment. Now, what's going on there is it's simply that the other prophets would determine if the prophecy was proper. And when they have a prophecy, they would stand and they would give it. But what's interesting is if... I was in the process of giving a prophecy in the Corinthian church, and Matt had a prophecy come upon him at that time. He would stand up, and I'm actually ordered to stop talking and sit down, and he would then begin to share, which is very interesting, just the nature of how prophecy worked in the New Testament church. Um, and we don't, ha uh, we don't leave the issue of prophecy then in verses 34 and 5, because he picks up that topic again. Uh, in verses 36 and following. So some of the prophets are going to be women. That's very clear in that context. And so we're still dealing with prophecy in the church at this juncture. Now in chapter 11, he, uh, he has said that if they are to prophesy, it was only women. It was only with their heads covered so that they would reflect submission to the men. So here's what is likely the situation uh, is that when it's time to give a judgment on the prophecy, Verse 29 again, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. It was a task for the men who were the prophets and not the women. And that would actually fit 
the sense of 1 Timothy 2 that we'll get to here in a bit, where women were not to teach or have authority. When you're rendering a judgment on the propriety and content of a prophecy, that's going to require both of those activities to occur. So instead, any questions would be held until they're with their husband. And the point being is that they were to appeal and inquire via the proper flow of authority. So again, imagine a woman might be up prophesying and the other prophets would hear and then judge, but it was the men prophets who would then be rendering a decision. Is that of the Lord or not? Is that correct or not? That was not the role of the women prophets to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of interesting. He he qualifies it there with two or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, picking up on Mosaic law mm-hmm. of of these are to be almost witnesses testifying as to what is true or sure. not. Sure, which was always a man. Yeah. Um, and then in First Timothy two nine through fifteen, um, Paul says this. He says, "Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair." and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Um, so the, the, the word likewise here in verse 9 shows a connection back to verse 8 where Paul enjoins the men there of the church to be consistently praying, but doing so with pure motives and heart. Um, simply put, this is a key role for men in general in the gathered church. In a similar manner, Paul now deals with what the women are to be doing with the gathered church. It's interesting because it implies, I mean, we can't state for absolute certainty, but it's interesting. He has to command the men, you should be praying and doing so in a holy manner. And he has having to command the women, you should stop, you should not be teaching or having authority over men. So you get the sense that in Ephesus, <laughs> the men were just kind of lumps on the log, passively doing their thing, and the women had stepped up into points of leadership and instruction. So he's actually trying to fix both of them. Men, you're being too quiet, and the women, you're doing things you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And, um, and then in verses 9 through 10, he deals with uh, there the manner of dress, um, and there he's it, it, simply put, it's to be orderly attire that is modest, uh, so it's not designed to call attention to the dress or to the person, simple hairstyles, not flaunting your wealth. But the the real issue is in verse 10 where she is to be adorned uh, or dressed in good works. So the focus for the woman of the church, all who, of course, claim to love God, uh, is that they are to be concerned with godly actions rather than mere adornment of the body. Uh, And then verse 11 is also uh, easy to understand, but it's then one that's harder to accept in our culture, uh, where he says a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Uh, women are to be actively learning and listening. Uh, Paul there is not focusing so much on the idea of learning, rather the focus is upon the manner in which she is to learn. Um, so he qualifies it there, that it's to be done quietly. Uh, that refers to a quiet or peaceful demeanor or presence, uh, but it also carries reference to talking as well. Um, the woman is not 
to be actively engaged in talking or disputing or questioning uh, when she is being taught. Rather, the opposite is to be present. Uh, he, he uses the term there, entire submissiveness. Um, that is the same word as used for wives toward their husbands uh, or slaves toward their masters. It's not a word that involves degradation, but rather it's they're uh, speaking of a will, willing decision to receive and act under the authority of another. Um, and here the point of authority uh, is, is going to be the teacher. Um, she's the exhibit in her posture, in her facial expressions, her tone of voice, choice of words, amount of words, um, and, and the goal behind her words uh, are to be a spirit of submission to that teacher's authority. Yeah, we see that as teachers, both for men and women. There, there's time where you're talking, and you can just see that agitation where the, a person wants to fight and argue. And he says that's just not the place for, at that point for the woman to be doing. Um, men, we would also argue, shouldn't be just being jerks either. Right. But uh, if you take that for what it says, it's not hard to understand. It just, again, like you said, culturally it's hard. So then we get into the meat of it in chapter uh, in verses 12 through 14. And, and the structure of it's important. It's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And it actually controls the flow and the sense of the passage. And so he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So those two points, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So that chiasm would works this way. The term teach is connected to the mention of Eve being deceived, and the term authority is connected to the mention of Adam being created first. And this is important to note because it establishes his argument not in the culture of the day, but actually back in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. When you listen to people try to make this passage go away, they will always make it, well, the, in that society, the patriarchal culture of the day, um, it, the historical setting of Ephesus, on and on and on. But that's not Paul's argument. He, he, he goes away from the culture, um, and he goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. Now, that word to teach is commonly used in the New Testament to refer to instruction in biblical truth teaching doctrine. He uses this broader word rather than to preach because it actually covers all aspects of instruction. So when you're preaching, you're teaching. But some people would say, well, preaching isn't the same as teaching. So he uses the broad word. Uh, it, so when it comes to instruction in biblical truth, this is an area, he says, that rests with the men of the church. Paul then moves to the topic of authority, and he prohibits it whenever a woman exercises authority over a man. So Paul is not making a statement of authoritative teaching. And that's another way they say, well, you can have authority, just not authoritative teaching. Rather, the construction of the passage actually makes them two very distinct functions and roles that are not allowed the, church, the women in a church. And he gives rationale behind these, true pro, these two prohibitions. Why no teaching? Well, because Eve was being deceived. When Eve was talking to Satan in the garden, he was actively lying to her and deceiving her, and she was not able to argue against his lies. Rather, she ended up believing them. And Adam, on the other hand, was not deceived. Rather, his own sin was actually a high-handed rebellion against God. He knew what 
was commanded and what was true, but he didn't listen to God, whereas Eve was actually the one deceived. So she didn't fall into sin, um, or I mean, well, I'm, I retract that. She did fall into transgression or sin, but the Bible never actually teaches that the sinfulness of mankind was due to Eve. Rather, it always focuses upon Adam's sin, and the reason is because he is the head of his wife and, in fact, the head of mankind, and therefore in him, Paul says, all of mankind sinned. Why not authority over men then? Well, Adam was created first. And so again, this goes back to why Adam's sin caused the fall of mankind while Eve's only affected herself. She was created to be a helper to Adam. She was under his authority. He was the one who was the head over all of humanity. Yeah, and then in verse uh, 15, he uh, sums it up, and he it's kind of a strange statement at first. Uh, at this, at a, yeah. when you're reading it, but it, it, what's going on here is something called a synecdoche, which is a just a fancy grammar term. Uh, so in two fifteen, First Timothy says, "But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint." Um, so, simply put, uh, this is a f- a figure of speech. Uh, in w- this is what a synecdoche is. It's a figure of speech in which a part is used to speak for the whole. So an example of this is when we say, um, you know, all hands on deck, when, you know, you're not going to be thinking of just like a little hand comes crawling out. Yeah, um, in fact, deck is even a synecdoche. Yeah, that's it's true. not just the deck. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a right. ship. It's yep. come to come to wherever you're supposed to be and be ready. Yeah, and, and everyone knows that when you say hand, it's in reference to the whole sailor, right? It's not a bunch of those little hands flopping around. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, or when we'll say, you know, when you're talking about the law, oh, the law is here when it's a police officer. Um, you know, so th- there you have uh, a part being mentioned to represent the whole. Um, there are many positions on this passage. Um, some will say it refers to Mary and the birth of Christ. Uh, others say it refers to Eve and her bearing children. Uh, it, some will say it teaches that salvation, literally salvation happens by bearing children. Well, that, and part of that's because of the trans, how you choose to translate the word, because some translations will say women will be saved. Through, right. right. And uh, the New American Standard used preserved, which I think was a better choice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so again, so what is the issue there? Well, it's then how you understand that word, uh, translated often as saved. Uh, this is assumed too often uh, uh, to refer to spiritual salvation from the wrath of God, from sin. But the term is uh, just a neutral word, and the context is what gives it its sense. So here, uh, we think it should be translated uh, as preserve, And what Paul has done then is he has taken one aspect that is unique only to women, namely childbirth, and he uses it to refer to the whole of what a woman is designed by God to be. Um, So in the church at the time, men were prohibiting marriage and children. Yeah, that's actually in prior chapter, I believe it is, or just above this. But yeah, you actually had false teachers coming in who were saying, don't have children, don't get married. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the, yeah, yeah that's the contextual yeah. issue. Um, also, certain foods were being prohibited there, um, and all of that 
because the end was believed to be upon them. Uh, they thought Christ was coming. Right. So, so Paul, by using this aspect of, um, which makes sense. I mean, why, you know, why would you have more children and if Jesus is coming, right? I mean, it's kind of what they were thinking. But, but Paul is using this aspect of the woman, um, or by using this aspect of the woman flies right in the face of their teaching. The, the point is not how a woman gets saved. Uh, the Bible is clear that all are saved by the grace of God as, as you put your faith in him. Um, and to argue anything else requires that you ignore the massive number of passages that teach otherwise. Including all of Paul's teaching. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, the Galatians yeah. 3, the Colossians 3. Uh, but by using this figure of speech here, uh, Paul shows once again that men and women are not the same. Uh, and men and women do not have the same roles or responsibilities in the home uh, or in the church. And so the idea is that women are to embrace all that goes into being a woman, uh, being content in how God has created them, embracing and accepting the roles and restrictions, therefore, that exist. Okay, so the next one would be in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This one is short and easy. Uh, it deals with the elders of a church, and it's always and ever only men. When it, deals right, when it deals right afterward with the official servants or deacons of the church, now you have men and women both included. But the key difference is between, between the two is one of authority and teaching. So the, the deacons are not the official teachers of the church, nor are they the ones in charge of the church. They're, they're the official servants of the church or ministers. Um, however, this is not to say that there would not be a type of authority in the role of deacons, because to officially serve the church likely will have a level of authority, but it's not to the level of an elder where submission to their leadership and authority is actually commanded. Yeah, and then another one would be Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Uh, the context there is given in verse 1. Uh, he, he says there, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Um, so not speaking of teaching doctrine, rather it is the proper application of sound doctrine. Um, twice there are result statements that essentially say the same thing. We see that in verse five and verse 10. Uh, and so here's the key point uh, to take away from this passage. Uh, you are to conduct your lives in a manner that is consistent with sound theology. Um, so if you claim to be or orthodox, which is just right teaching, but your lifestyle is consistently not one of orthopraxy, which is right practice, then all that's saying is that you don't have a true orthodoxy. Right. Um, so what, what, what needs to be noticed is that the roles here are not formal positions of leadership, rather they're positions of respect simply due to a well-ordered life. Uh, they are positions of influence now rather than ones of formal ruling. Yeah, because he doesn't deal just with the women there. He deals with men as well. The older men are to be treated as fathers. Younger men uh, are to comport themselves as young men. So the whole passage is, here's sound theology, and this is what it looks like now in the life of an older woman, a younger woman, an older man, a younger man. This is what it now will look like if you practice that theology. Yeah. Um, so he addresses the older women 
in verses three through four. And this is essentially is the resume of a godly older woman. He says, first of all, that they are to be reverent. Um, this term speaks of a sacredness. It has the image of an older woman conducting herself like a priestess. Uh, the, the reverence is to pervade her behavior, but that only happens when reverence pervades the mind. Uh, it's easy for us to compartmentalize our lives, making some things sacred and other things common, but a wise older woman understands that all things are holy uh, and all things are sacred and therefore conducts herself in that manner. And the result is that you become, frankly, a woman who blesses those who come into contact with you. Uh, another one would be uh, they're there to have a sweetness of speech. Uh, the term for malicious gossip is the same word we get, devil. Um, it, it speaks of a woman who uses her tongue to hurt and attack and tear down rather than to build up. Um, the, the gossiper or the slander uh, merely reveals the heart. The problem is that the younger ladies in the church are now in a tough position because they should be learning from the older women, but they can't. Yeah. They, when they get together with the older ladies, instead of hearing godly sweet speech, they hear gossip. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the wife, the older woman's complaining about her husband too. And it's like, you're not helping. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then he says that they are to be sober. Uh, that is speaking of the idea of enslavement. Uh, wine uh, becomes too important. And so you begin to take it beyond what is, what is right. Uh, in Crete, living in excess was normal. Uh, much like America, I guess. Uh, in fact, heavy drinking was considered a virtue. Uh, so this this would be a real issue for the older women in the church. Okay, so building off of that, he goes on to say that, that the older women are be teachers of good things. A godly older woman should be a teacher, passing on actually virtuous living to the next generation. Being older is not the qualification to teach younger women, however. It's a godly life where one brings into it all uh, a devoutness, a dignity, and a, even a calmness. W younger women should be blessed by being in an older woman's company. Many uh, older women desire to be an influence in the lives of others, but that requires a humble heart that has been growing in life following Jesus over time. Now, that so. This teacher of good things is now going to be shown. What what does that look like? What are these good things? Well, uh, an older woman is to be an exhorter. The term encourage or train is another way you could say it. It speaks of admonishment. It's where we see what is good. It's where we see what good things the older woman is to teach the younger woman. They are to interact with young ladies, and as they do, they will see things and hear things in those young ladies' lives that need to be addressed, and they are to be a type of woman who's willing to speak to the issues. If they're a godly woman, they have a real opportunity to influence that young woman. Uh, they're given a chance to speak into the life and the home of another, and that is not to be taken lightly. It is a huge responsibility, and it takes courage. Uh, in other words, ladies, you want to be the type of older woman that when a husband finds out that his wife, as a young woman, is meeting with you, he's happy. Uh, he's happy because he knows that you're going to be exhorting her toward godliness rather than tearing things down that he's trying to establish in his own home. So admonition and exhortation is stronger than merely encouraging, though. It raise, it's that raising of your eyebrows and speaking boldly in areas of weakness. It's instructing 
but without hypocrisy. It requires humility, as you will discover that not every young lady wants to be exhorted. It requires faith, as you will not always see the results that you hope to see, at least right away. Yeah. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he addresses then the younger women. Uh, and note that the way that a younger woman is to learn this from the older women in the church, um, it's, it's not from one another, uh, as much as that's often a temptation. Um, note also that the younger women is not one who is in the child, um, I'm sorry, note also that the younger woman is one who is in the childbearing age, and so her role is that of growing in maturity and godliness. It is not seen as one of authority or broad influence. Let me Let me jump in real quickly. So, the idea there is that in Paul's thinking, if you're still having babies, you're a younger woman. You know, and and that's not your place to then be looking to be the the influencer of everybody. Um, in fact, I know like uh, my daughter has invited some ladies, and they're going over and going through a book on parenting, and then also listening to our podcast on it. But she asked uh, my wife, her mother, to also come to be the the one who speaks. And and the reason for it is Becca's still in the childbearing years. Even though she has a, a, a level of wisdom that I think she can impart, Kim, my wife, actually has the place because she's comported herself in such a godly manner over the years. Now she can look at all these wives. She's all done with children, and she can speak to them in a way that, no younger woman can. And we've all heard it. Yes. We've heard young men try to speak like they're wise men. It's like, I'd rather hear from an old guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and the same the other way. Yeah. And the caveat I would add to that is, and I think you mentioned it, but just because they're older doesn't mean they get no. to speak either. So it, if, if you are in childbearing age, what I always tell people is, um, upon deciding whom you will let speak in your life and influence you, make certain that you are looking to the fruit yes. of what that person has produced. Just because they're older and they speak authoritatively or they want to speak into your life or they're telling you you need to or that you should do this or you should consider, you should not be considering or doing until you've examined them and their life and their children or whatever issue it is that is being spoken of by that older person. Doesn't mean you tell them no or be a jerk to them. You still respect them and honor them, um, but you should figure out how much weight you want to put on their words when you're looking at the fruit they have or have not produced. That, that is a huge caveat, though. So I'll, I mean, I'll, let me say it a little different way. Um, why would you, if you want to learn how to handle money, go to a man and say, would you teach me when the man's, uh, you know, declaring bankruptcy and he's in debt up to his ears? And, you know, it's like, what do you think this guy is going to teach you? And yet we'll do it all the time. We'll, let, we'll allow voices into our, our homes as young people um, from people who have not exhibited that level of faithfulness. The, for some of them, they've repented, right? Uh, they, they regret choices they made in the earlier years. But the best that they can really instruct you in is what not to do. Um, they're not able to talk to you about what it looks like to remain faithful by faith as you do the right thing, if, I, I don't know if I'm making sense. I'm not. I'm, it's it's hard because we're looking desperately for somebody to speak into our life when we're young. We're we're confused. We're frustrated. We're tired. I mean, every young mother is tired all the time, and uh, there and and somebody can speak to them. But always seek out 
the ones who qualify for that older woman that we just described above. Yeah. Um, that That's a good word, too, because there are older folks who are now on the back end of their life, and they're, they know the mistakes they've made. Yeah. And, and maybe they don't have the fruit, um, but they have certainly grown in wisdom. <laughs> yeah. And so they have something still to offer you by saying, uh, look, at, here's, here's what you don't do. <laughs> well, <laughs> Instruction because, through the negative. Right? Well, yeah, but I mean, and it, there is a place for that, right? I mean, you look at a person, who, a young lady who's doing some things, and you pull her aside and say, sweetheart, look, um, I did that. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it doesn't end well. Don't. Don't. Please listen to me on that. Trust me on that. And now, now a woman is seeking to um, repent, in a sense, through her instruction. But it's, it's what's always frustrating is the one who is speaking uh, authoritatively on this is what you should do, and yet you look at their life in that area, and it's a mess. And we see that with pastors all the time, right, where their marriages are in complete disarray, their children are in rebellion, and yet they're up there preaching on how a home ought to function. It's like, dude, you need to step down from your position and go get your house in order, properly in order, and then maybe you'll have something to say in a few years. But right now, you should shush. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, anyhow. Yeah, okay, so um, that's the, the Young Women, chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, so, Paul, they're saying they, they need to, to learn now to have affection for both their husband and their children. Um, literally, uh, husband lovers and children lovers. Um, this is due to the way that they married in that culture. They really would need to know how to deal with both the husband and the children. Yeah, I've talked to some people who grew up with arranged marriages, yeah. and they met their husband and married. And I asked the wife, I said, what was that like? And she's like, she's like we think that you Americans are weird. <laughs> I'm like, huh, we think you're weird. And she's like, but, but what was interesting was I said, well, what was it like? She's like, I had to learn to love them. And and she said it with no bitterness. She just said, we didn't know each other. And we, and she said, and my ha- husband had to learn to love me. And I'm like, that's very, very interesting. But boy, then you look at this passage and it makes all the more sense of, you know, you're, you're coming into a household with a husband and you you may not know them that well. And, and next thing, no birth control at all back then, right? right? Next thing you know, you're cranking out the babies, you're pooped all the time, and and um, no, you had no disposable diaper or wipes. Everything is hard. Yeah. And, and that older woman can come alongside and listen to your tears, talk about it, encourage you, and look, here's how you can show your husband love. Here's how you can enjoy those children. Yeah, they're exhausting. But here, let me let me exhort you in that, and and that becomes very sweet in my mind. Yeah, um, in our culture, there's a heavy influence on romance, yeah. uh, and emotion, and so this this then takes on a different flavor. Um, once that romance wears off, now the hard work begins with these relationships, and it takes care, it takes skill. Uh, it's hard to watch a woman who allows bitterness. Um, uh, love of leisure, that that personal freedom, uh, even pride to not learn to truly enjoy their husband or their children, um, and it's not something that is natural. It, it de- truly is a skill that takes effort and time. It is fitting for the gospel to have a woman who embraces these relationships rather than resisting them. Yeah. 
he says that they are also to be sensible, next uh, quality, that uh, like the older man, the young woman needs self-control over her thoughts and over her emotions. Um, weariness and challenges in her life will tempt her to just get through it all, but with no desire necessarily for excellence. Uh, or they'll develop a, a neediness where she's consistently taught, tossed about emotionally. Yeah, you mentioned like an older man. That's because in the broader context, he actually commands the older man to be a sensible person. And and that's what an older woman is supposed to be teaching also the younger woman. So older women and men are both supposed to be sensible and stable in that sense, that self-control. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and that's, again, where that, that older woman comes into play. Uh, she, she's been there, she's done that, so she can now bring the counsel, the encouragement, uh, and wisdom. Uh, next, she's, she's said to be pure. Uh, this means what it means, uh, pure in thoughts, pure in deeds, um, though the emphasis is, is more on um, more, uh, it, it's a moral purity, sexual purity, uh, involves a modest heart and then therefore manifests itself in a modest and pure life. Uh, she's also to be a worker at home. Uh, that's a controversial point, uh, but doesn't need to be. The point is simply that for a young woman who is married and with children, her focus and her energy should start at home, and then it is to work outward from there. Um, it, it's not necessarily forbidding a woman uh, from working. Rather, it's a reminder for the woman there in the Cretan church that they should not despise the home and the labor that is involved in it. Um, this involves becoming an expert at the home, uh, understanding that it's the hub and, uh, of activity and of life for the family. And it's often where the husband would, would ply his craft uh, as well. And so one of the ways the early church served each other was through hospitality. Uh, we tend to make the home a retreat, um, but it's actually supposed to be the opposite. And so the lady of, of the house is the one who makes that happen. All right, so the next thing then is to be subject to their own husband. And the key word there is actually that little word own because it's so easy for a woman to be subject to someone else rather than her own husband. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. And this is uh, was unpopular back then, and it's still unpopular today. And so usually it's seen as demeaning, but it's something that we're all involved in. All Christians are, in fact, called to be in submission to uh, various people and institutions. Um, but it's a willful act, right? It, it's to be taught to the women. A man cannot make his wife submit, and honestly, he should not try to do so. It's something a woman uh, willingly gives because her uh, Lord commands it, and, of course, he's honored by it. Uh, the Bible never tells the man to demand submission, but rather it's the woman who is to willingly give it up. This will always be onerous to us until God's glory and reputation becomes our highest goal. Then it becomes something we can embrace with purpose and joy. It has a powerful evangelistic effect as well as other women see you with a totally different spirit and approach to living. So now, what about those who are single who are hearing this? Well, the presumption in the Bible is that most of the women will eventually be married. Now, the culture of various societies may push against this as a norm, but a Christian mind should be moved in that direction. So we would first of all say that even in our society where singleness is adored, I think we just, didn't we just see an article come on that only 18% of the households in America are now with a husband and wife? I believe I saw that from the Not the Bee 
um, and was like, that's just sad. Um, and so we're dealing with a, a culture that's totally different now and, and single is the norm. Uh, but a Christian mindset should be moving the opposite direction. So mom and dad should be raising up women to think about marriage, and they should be raising up men who are prepared to go pursue a woman for marriage. But being single does not free a person from the greater overarching goal of becoming Christ-like in one's life. So singleness is a time when a person prepares for the possibility of marriage. If marriage does not happen, then they're still to pursue a godly, faithful life that is made up of sensible, faithful, good works. The pursuit of a career, traveling, and such cannot ever supplant the purpose of godliness. So we would just simply say to a, go- a single woman, still be busy about growing in genuine godliness. This is not your time to travel. This is a time for you to study, grow, and learn to comport yourself in a godly manner. So these are the key verses that actually instruct us regarding the role of women in the church. And the key takeaway is very simple. The women in the church are to be involved in every aspect of serving the local church other than the two areas prohibited, which is teaching and having authority over men. That is where the separation takes place, and it's where everyone would be wise to begin their consideration on this divisive topic. Society cannot be the driving force for the church, but it is too often. We need to repent of that mindset. We need to stop trying to get around clear passages on any given topic that clash with the current social mood. Now, we have one more episode to do on this point of theology, which is head coverings, and then we're going to start to finish up ecclesiology and then move into the exciting topic of end times or eschatology. Until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We would love to hear your thoughts on the role of women in the church. And as always, don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell a friend. (music) 